Well, if maybe by show of hands, I wonder how many of you remember Stuart Little? Most of the people here, good. Stuart Little was a book written in the 40s and was later made a movie in 1999. And I understand that the book and the movie have some differences, but in the movie, at least, you're introduced to the Little family. Little, of course, being their last name, but fittingly, this family is rather small. This family is composed of a a mom, a dad, and their only son. But the Little family was looking to grow, and so they sought to adopt a son. But to everyone's surprise, Mr. and Mrs. Little didn't bring home a boy, but instead they adopted a mouse named Stuart. So the movie is set up to depict the challenges of this mouse living in a human world. Stuart can't ride a bike like other boys. He can't use a bowling ball like other boys. He needs to buy his clothes that were actually designed for action figures. And furthermore, this mouse has a pet cat. It makes for a charming movie. And if you enjoy these kinds of films, you might watch it with your kids. But the movie itself, as it suggests, is ridiculous as it suggests that one might actually adopt a mouse. You see, if you or I found a mouse in our house, we would not adopt it. We would exterminate it. And even kids, if you have a a mouse, if your parents actually allow that in your home as a pet, it's probably owing to the fact that they prefer that over a snake, or perhaps because it was less work than a dog. We all recognize that animals are not equal to people. Even the dog and the cat were not made in the image of God, but rather God made man and woman in his image. And so he gave Adam and Eve dominion over all the creatures there in the garden. And thus even you and I this morning are of much more value than many sparrows. Well, in a similar way, we must recognize that the Son of God holds a position of honor that is far greater than the position of angels. That's what our text shows us this morning. Look at Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This morning's text comes as the seventh and final quote in this long string of quotes that is demonstrating the son's superiority over the angels. And each Old Testament quote comes together like a string of pearls. And like a pearl necklace, this series of quotes also has complementing clasps, one that comes before it and one that comes at the end. At the beginning, we read this stunning statement about the Son of God. Long ago... At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the son who is superior to the angels is the very person who has spoken to us. And in light of the son's status that is greater than the angels, the writer concludes in chapter 2, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hebrews 2 will be the text next week, but it's important for us to see that so that we can rightly understand the context of our text this morning. So let's look again at 
Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. Our text this morning says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I have three points that I am going to draw from this text. First, I want us to see what God has said to the angels. Then we'll see what God has said to his son. And finally, as we apply this text to us, I want us to pay attention to what God says of us. So let's look at that first point. Consider what God says to the angels. Our text is made up of two rhetorical questions that speak of the position of angels. The first question shows us what position they do not hold. It's a negative question. It's a rhetorical question put in a a negative light. So let's look at it, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This rhetorical question can be read as a statement if you just understand it to say, to none of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God has never appointed a single angel to take the throne. So we should understand angels are not seated as kings. Don't mistake what he's saying here. Angels, they do hold a very honorable position in the throne room of God. Jesus taught this in Matthew 18.10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now this text will make more sense in just a moment as we continue to consider the position that the angels have there in the throne room of God. But what is clear is that they're in the presence of God and they see the face of God, which is a a honor for sure, but none of the angels are in that position of authority on the throne of God. Rather, they are in the throne room standing ready to do the bidding of God the Father. Look again at what the author says now in verse 14. They're not put in the position of authority. They're not put there on the the throne at the right hand of God the Father. And so he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Again, another rhetorical question, but the answer is yes. Yes, they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So understand this, angels are sent out as servants. The writer of Hebrews here tells us something that you and I might not believe if it had not been written here in Scripture so clearly. The angels do the bidding of God, but what God commands them to do is serve those of you who are Christians. But hopefully this isn't too difficult for you to believe, since we see angels fulfilling this very duty throughout the Scriptures. Kids, do you remember Lot and his family? Sodom and Gomorrah were about to be destroyed. And you remember these were the relatives of Abraham and and, and God had sent these angels in to see if there was anyone righteous in the city. And there was no one, not even Lot and his family were righteous. And so Sodom and Gomorrah was doomed to be destroyed. But The Lord had mercy on Lot and his family. He was going to rescue them from this destruction. And so we read in Genesis 19.15, 
As morning dawned, the angel urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside of the city. Do you suppose that angels prod us along even today the way he did for Lot and his family? It might seem like a ridiculous notion at first, but we see a similar thing happening again in the New Testament. This time, Peter. Peter's in prison awaiting to be executed. And we read this. The angel of the Lord stood next to him and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now these are just two examples of ways in which the Lord sends his angels to serve his people. But there are no shortage of examples that you'd see in your Bible. These angels are very involved in human activity. And if this is unbelievable for us to see simply because we do not see it, remember, these spiritual realities are at place in our physical eyes, though you and I cannot see most, if not any, of these things. We read of this in 2 Kings 6, 15 and 17. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes of the young man, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So may the Lord too open our eyes, the eyes of our faith, so that we might believe all that the scriptures teach. It is plain in this text that the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve us who are to inherit salvation. But if it's just too strange for you to believe, let me just remind you of the very core doctrines that we believe. We believe that our holy, holy, holy God came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Moreover, we believe that our creator became our savior by taking the form of a servant and dying on the cross for our sins. And we believe that just as he was resurrected from the grave, so too everyone who is in Christ will be raised with him in the last day. If it's hard to believe that angels serve us, understand it is far more difficult to imagine our God saving us from our sins. Now you and I probably have a lot more questions about angels this morning. I certainly do. I know I do. But, but let's not give ourselves to many speculations that would be of very little, if not no value at all to us. Rather, let's continue to listen to what God has made clear in his word. Let's pay attention to the quote that he makes in Psalm 110 in the first rhetorical question. Hebrews 1.13, quoting Psalm 110, says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This quote, this psalm, is a significant passage for us as it is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other passage of Scripture. And while this morning's text doesn't make explicit who it is who sits on the throne, we need not wonder who it is who is put on the throne. Peter preached from Psalm 110 at Pentecost, and he made clear who this king is. Acts 2 
32, this Jesus, Peter said, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Understand who is on the throne of God there at the right hand of the Father. It is Jesus Christ. So let us consider what God has said to the Son. And to help fully understand what's going on here, I want us to actually turn to Psalm 110 for a moment. This psalm tells of a future king, at least from when it was being appended, a future king who would be exalted by God. And if we spent more time in this psalm this morning, we'll discover that this king also functions as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which I'm sure many of you are like, Melchizedek, who's Melchizedek? Well, we're not going to get to that today, uh, but the writer of Hebrews will return to Psalm 110, so we'll, we'll certainly answer that question later on, if the Lord allows. But this morning, we'll be focusing on verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1, it starts actually by saying that the psalm is a psalm of David. And it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I want us to look at those two words, Lord and Lord, there at the beginning of verse 1. You'll notice they, they look a little bit different in your Bibles. The second word, Lord, there, with just a capital L and lowercase o-r-d, is, is referring to a king or a master. But if you compare this to the first word, Lord, that's there in all caps, you should understand that the two words are actually not the same in the original language. The second one is referring to a king, but the first one is referring to God himself by his covenant name. The LSB translates this accordingly. Yahweh, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Hopefully you can follow the significance of these two words and how they're different from one another. Yahweh, the Father, God himself, is speaking to another person who is distinct from himself. And King David, who's penned this psalm, refers to this other person as my Lord. Jesus uses this psalm to show the Pharisees the significance of who the Messiah is. Listen to what Jesus said. Now, while the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? What Jesus is showing the Pharisees is this. It's what the Pharisees wanted to reject about Jesus and about the Messiah. That though he would come in the line of David as a son, he was far more than being merely a son of David. In other words, the son of David is also the son of God. If I've lost you up to this point, let me say it as simply as I can. 
quoting now from Philippians 2, referring to Jesus, who God has seated at his right hand. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Understand, the Son, he is seated in the highest position, and he is put there because the Father has appointed him to sit on the throne. So the angels, they not only worship the Son, but they stand there in the presence of God the Father and in the presence of Jesus Christ to do the bidding of King Jesus. Even King David though he was the greatest king that Israel ever knew, was not the greatest king who ever was. For Jesus is the king of every earthly king, and Jesus is the Lord of every lowly Lord. As Americans, we do not like the thought of being subject to kings. And while we are not subject to the king of England anymore, Every one of us is subject to King Jesus. Take the Great Commission, for example. When you think about the Great Commission, we think about a text that is sending the disciples out onto mission to preach the gospel to those who have yet to hear of Jesus Christ. And, and it certainly is that. But the Great Commission is first and foremost a text of King Jesus' authority. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to me. Kings are going to tell you not to preach the gospel. Kings are going to try to shut your mouth, but it is not their authority to whom you submit to. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Understand, the one who commands you is your king. And this is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Those who follow Jesus are subject to all that he has commanded. And so if the angels stand ready to be sent by Jesus who bids them to go and serve, the Great Commission shows us that we should do the same. The whole world can reject King Jesus. The kings of the earth can mock him by putting a, a crown of thorns on his head. And the majority of the world can reject Jesus by choosing a criminal like Barabbas over Jesus Christ. But though every man would defy Jesus' authority, mock him and reject him, the Father honors his Son by placing him in the highest position of authority but that's not all the father said to the son he didn't just invite him to sit on the son but he also made the son a promise he said sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet we see here that the son's enemies will be thrust into the lowest position beneath the son and this is a promise that God the Father has made to his Son, so we ought to mark it well, for it will most certainly come to pass. Those who make themselves enemies of King Jesus will be made his footstool. 
And if you don't know exactly what that means, I want you to listen to the language of Joshua. Joshua went into Israel and conquered the enemies that were there. And we read in Joshua 10, 24, they brought those kings out to Joshua, those enemies. Joshua, they brought those kings out to Joshua. Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who have gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of those kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Let us get that image in our mind. It's not something that just happened in the days of Joshua to these kings whom the Lord defeated. It is also an image of what is to come. John got a glimpse of this image in Revelation 19. Then I saw the heavens opened. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what God has said of his son. Come, sit at my right hand. And this comes with a promise that he will make his enemies his footstool. So let us consider, consider finally now what God says of you. If you gloss over this morning's text too quickly, you might miss where you and I are spoken of, but every one of us can be identified in this morning's text. Look at verse 13 and 14 again, but this time I want you to try to see where you're identified. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Every one of us in here fits into one of these two categories, as either an enemy or as one who is to inherit salvation. And so we should examine ourselves carefully and consider what category we belong to. Let's consider first who these enemies are. Satan and his demons make a good candidate for who are the enemies of Jesus Christ. And we know this, for God said it would come to pass that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent under his foot. And every demon will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. But we need to go beyond that, for there are also people who are enemies of King Jesus. So let me suggest three categories of those who make themselves enemies of this king. First, the atheist. Those who would deny God. The atheist defies the command of King Jesus, choosing rather not to listen to the words of the king, but rather to call the shots for themselves. Understand this this morning. If you deny God, 
If you deny Jesus Christ, know that you are an enemy of the King. And unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be made his footstool. But it's not just the atheists who will be made a footstool. Consider now, secondly, the theists who worship a God, but not the one true God. They do not worship Jesus Christ like the angels do. Those people would be those that are Buddhist, those who are Hindu, Muslim, even the Jews who deny Jesus Christ, though they would say they believe that God is one. Moreover, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Roman Catholics, and anyone else who would twist the truth of who Jesus Christ is make themselves enemies of King Jesus. Far from there being many paths to heaven, Jesus makes it so clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you can believe in a God and still be an enemy of King Jesus. So, brothers, sisters, friends, I guess you're not brothers and sisters, believe in Jesus Christ so that you might be saved. But there's one last category I want us to consider this morning, and it's the practical atheist. What's the practical atheist? Who, who are they? Well, these are theists. That means they believe in God, or at least a God. And moreover, these theists might even call Jesus, King and Lord. But Jesus has many enemies who call on him as Lord. Jesus said so. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You hear that profession coming out of their mouth, Lord, Lord. The very same words that David said when he said, The Lord says to my Lord. Now mark this word here in verse 22. On that day, many, many, not a few, but many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are the practical atheists. They profess Jesus as Lord but in reality, Jesus does not know them. You might think that you are a friend of King Jesus because you hold a certain rank in his church, but this is not a mark of submitting to Jesus as Lord. Do you remember Joab, the commander? He held a high rank amongst David's military captains. But Joab's rank did not save him from the wrath of the king, for he was an enemy of King David. So too, Balaam. Do you remember Balaam? He spoke oracles on behalf of God, blessing over Israel rather than curses. But just because Balaam was used by God did not mean that he was not an enemy of God. And one more example, consider Judas. He was among one of the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. He, he even did many mighty works in the name of Jesus. But all of these things did not mean Judas was not an enemy of Jesus. So don't count yourself a friend of Jesus, one who submits to him, if in fact you do not submit to him at all. 
For further study, I want to suggest a few passages for you on this subject. Let me read these texts, and I I encourage you to, to write these references down and go home and read them in their fuller context and meditate on them. First in Titus 1, Paul speaks about these practical atheists. He says this, They profess to know God, their mouths profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. John taught the same thing as well. First John 2.4 Whoever says, I know him, that's out of their mouth. They say, I know God, but they do not keep his commandments. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. James teaches us something very similar. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You can deceive yourself, dear ones by saying things and all the while not being one who does that which you say. First Peter and Jude both have a very similar message, but let me read from Jude 4 about those who would twist the grace of God. Jude says, For certain people have crept in, crept into the church, crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our maker, our only maker and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the tip of the iceberg, dear ones. There are many, many other texts that you might read that would show us the very same thing, but I would encourage you to start here and and meditate on these texts. But we're going to continue in it as well, as Hebrews is going to give us plenty of warnings. Warnings for us, even Christians, that encourage us to endure in the faith. But those who would walk as enemies of God, I want you to hear this exhortation this morning, fear him. Be terrified of his wrath. Yes, the wrath of Jesus Christ. For God will make you his footstool if you do not turn, believe, and repent. But you might be wondering, well, what about God's mercy and grace towards sinners? Yes, there is mercy and grace, but it is not for those who deny him by their works. But it is for those who trust in Jesus and continue to turn away from their sins. Listen to the word of the Lord that came through the prophet. He spoke concerning those who were to teach the word of God, those who were prophets and priests. Referring to them, we read this. They have healed the wounds of my people lightly, Jeremiah 6.14. What does it mean to heal the wounds of people lightly? It means to put a band-aid over a bullet wound that's bleeding out. That's what it means to heal the wounds of people lightly. It's to put just a little cover-up over the top of it so maybe that people would feel better. And what is the band-aid that's placed under this bullet wound? They have healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's their words. The proclamation of peace where there is no peace. That is the band-aid that will not save a person who's bleeding out. They say, do not worry about your sin. You're okay. God is merciful. And you're a child of Abraham. You should feel better now. So go. That's the band-aid that they put over the bullet wound. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now what is the bullet wound? Were they ashamed when they committed abomination 
They were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punishment punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. I do not want to be a preacher who puts band-aids on bullet wounds. Rather, I wish to declare the whole counsel of God. And this morning's text comes to us with a very clear warning for those who make themselves enemies of God. You don't need to be an atheist to be an enemy of Christ. You don't need to be a Buddhist to be an enemy of Christ. All you have to do is continue in your sin. But not everyone is an enemy of this king. You see, our text speaks of another group of people, another group of people who I have no doubt are among us here this morning as well. So let's turn our attention to this second group of people. For those who believe in Jesus Christ and continue to repent of of their sins, for those of you who have submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and observe all that he has commanded, you should see yourself in verse 14. Of the angels we read, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Now, while the angels are the subject of verse 14, it is the Christian who is the one who is to receive the ministry of the angels. Christians are those who are to inherit salvation. Now, let me make two observations about that, that that, that Christians inherit salvation. First of all, the salvation that is to be received is a future salvation. Yes, Christian, you are saved. You stand right now in right standing before God. You are justified because of what Jesus Christ has done. You have been saved from sin. You have been delivered from the wrath of God. But this here is speaking of a future salvation that that we are all still anticipating. It's a salvation that will be received in the last day when we're saved from every last enemy be it Satan or remaining sin. Yes, remaining sin. Christians still have remaining sin. I'm not saying we're supposed to be perfect. I'm saying we continue to pursue God and holiness, walking in repentance. And in the last day, we will be made perfect. And sin will be defeated once and for all. On the last day, we will be saved from depression and cancer. On the last day, we will be saved from all persecution and even death itself. If you keep the faith to the very end, brothers and sisters, you will be saved. And so may Paul's confidence as he awaited his death in prison be your confidence as well if you continue to follow King Jesus. The Lord will rescue me, Paul said, from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go back to our text, though, now, Hebrews 1.14, and consider how it is that this salvation, this future salvation is to be received. It says that we are to inherit salvation. Salvation is an inheritance that is, is received. Anyone who's ever received an inheritance knows that an inheritance is not given as a wage for work. Rather, inheritances are, are given to those who are sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of God? 
such a reality is beyond what we could possibly fathom, especially if you realize who God is, who Jesus is. It would be sooner in our mind reasonable to think that adopting a mouse as a son would be a good idea than before one would make their enemy their child. And yet this is exactly what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in this, through his death, we are brought into the family of God. All who receive Jesus Christ, John says, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Did you catch that? God adopts you. He chooses you, and he brings you into his family according to his will. And so for those who truly trust and believe in Jesus Christ, for those who are being made more and more into the image of Christ, not just being made into the image of God, but being remade into the image of Christ, here's my exhortation to you this morning. Fear not. Fear not, car wrecks or sickness, or disease. Fear not your enemy, or persecution, or death. For your king is your savior, and your king is your brother. And he will surely keep us safe to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for sending your son to save us from the death that we deserved. Even when we are enemies, Lord, we thank you for this plan of salvation that you put into act and this work of salvation that you continue to apply to our lives as you sanctify us by your spirit. Lord, did you ask that, that your word would have that effect on us this morning, that it would continue to cleanse us that it would continue to give us a, a hatred for sin and a, a love for your glory. And Lord, even for those who came in this morning as your enemy, Lord, would you save them? Rescue them from their sin and death. Grant them faith. Grant them repentance. Lord, we know you can do that. Nothing is too hard for you. You can turn even the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. So would you do that in our hearts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.